Welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Anybody here go see Mission Impossible Rogue Nation on Friday or Saturday night? Anyone? Okay, a few. Huge. I love this part of the year where the blockbuster movies are coming out and one weekend after another there's a there's a new movie and they're action oriented and you, you got to admit Ethan Hunt is better than you and he's also better than me. I mean, think about it. He doesn't need first class cuz he can ride the aircraft from the outside. When he wears a suit, it's perfectly fit to his frame. Women fall down and, and, and die in his presence or, or the opposite. They, they try to make him die in their presence. It's, it's just incredible, this guy, Ethan Hunt, and, and all the things that he can do. The man is the myth and the myth is the man. And when we see people around us, the thing is, it can feel sort of the same way. Have you heard about Facebook syndrome? Facebook syndrome is when you look at somebody on Facebook and it it seems like their life is, is going great. Because they're always posting awesome stuff on their Facebook page about their last vacation or, or something wonderful that's happened with their children. Very rarely do people post their challenges. And I don't know that I've ever seen someone on a Facebook page post something about themselves that they're deeply ashamed of. That they feel they have deep regrets about. You see, when we look at others, they, they can kind of have this, this reputation, an Ethan Hunt reputation that seems like, why are they so perfect? Why do they have their act together? And I have so many things going on in my life that, I'm, that I have deep regrets about, that I'm deeply ashamed of. I did a little study on shame for this message. And several psychologists Uh, wrote some pretty interesting things like this. So I'll, I'll, I'll quote them. One said, shame is the quintessential human emotion. By quintessential, he means it, it's a pretty common, very highly experienced emotion that almost every one of us has because we have regrets and things that we're ashamed of that we've done in our life. There are skeletons in our closets. And there are very few, probably no people that don't have a few pretty major skeletons in their closets. Things that they're deeply ashamed of, things that they keep secret, maybe even from their spouse, their parents, the people that they're closest to. Those are things that we hold. We, we feel like if anyone knew those things about me, they would, they would never want to associate with me again. Another psychologist said, And this is an interesting one, especially in light of things like the the shootings recently. We've had a spate of them recently. The most recent was the, the movie theater in Louisiana. But this psychologist said, all extravagant behaviors 
and very violent behaviors are reactions to shame. Think about that. Maybe some of you have violence around you. And, and, and you may be asking, why, do, why does this person act this way? And, and this particular psychologist at least would say, this person is dealing with some unresolved shame and regret. You may, you may ask yourself, why do I fly off this handle? Seemingly sometimes at, at nothing. Why can't I control my temper? Why do I get so angry about things? And a question I might ask you to ask yourself this morning is, do you have some unresolved shame and guilt in your life that makes you feel, even though you're not necessarily connecting those dots, angry and possibly violent? If you put your fist through drywall, if you've kicked a door violently open, those are questions that we need to be asking ourselves. And hopefully, we're going to talk today about this question. Why do I feel shame? And if I do feel shame, how do I resolve it? Because here's the thing, and and this is... This is what a lot of people don't realize, not only about shame, but about almost any very strong negative emotion. It's true of anger. It's true of grief. And I could go on and on with a a long list of these sort of negative emotions that the emotions in and of themselves are typically things that God has created us to experience but to experience them for a brief time and then move forward and leave those negative emotions behind. And in fact, most of the emotions that we would consider negative emotions, anger, grief, depression, so on and so forth, are all, at times, most of the time maybe, appropriate responses to what we're experiencing The pathology, the problem, the sin comes in when we don't find a way to move past them and we stay in them. And most of the psychologists would tell you that if you're someone that has walked into a theater with a gun intending to shoot people, it's not because you experienced shame. It's because you didn't move on from shame. And so it's very important for us today to understand that that shame is useful, but that we can't camp out in shame for too long. And we certainly don't want to build a foundation on shame and build a house on shame and start to live in shame. So let's talk about this. And we're going to do this by talking about David's shame. Last week, Phil eloquently did just a phenomenal job last week leading us through the story of of David's fall into a huge uh, just drastic public sin he took his his uh, one of his most loyal loyal soldiers Uriah uh, Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men, one of the the best men most loyal men that that David had and he in short, stole his wife, 
than to cover it up after Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, became pregnant. Then David had Uriah the Hittite murdered in battle and then covered it up. And finally, as we heard at the end of last week's message, God finally had to come after David to get him to turn his heart and to repent of his sin and to bring it out and put it on the table. So, so God sent Nathan, the prophet, to do that. And, and, and since we've already had all the details of that, if you haven't heard the details of that, I want to encourage you to, to go to our new website and you can listen or even watch the messages there and listen to last week's message because, like I said, it was beautifully rendered. Um, what I want to do today in setting that up is take you into some of the words that Nathan said to David as Nathan very courageously, probably uh, at the risk of his own life, is confronting the king, King David, about his sin, multiple sins, adultery, murder, cover-up. So here's, here's what's happening. Let's take a look at that, that uh, first passage, 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 10. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. So David is angry because Nathan has told a story kind of to set David up that some other guy did this horrible thing. And David said, we're going to punish that guy. That horrible thing that he did, it's going to cost him his life. And then Nathan turns the tables and he says to David, David, that story I told, which didn't seem to be about you, was only about you. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, all you had to do was ask David, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David had sent Uriah into the battle and and told the general in a message sent by Uriah's own hand, withdraw from him so he's left out on the field of battle all by himself. That's why Nathan is saying that. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. So will you underline those words? The sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is not Nathan saying you despised me. This is Nathan speaking for the Lord saying, David, you despised the Lord. You you despised his word. You know his clear commands, what he wanted of you and what he didn't want of you. Now I want you to go back to the top. Look at what it says God is saying to David. Uh, Just maybe uh, take your pen out and I want you to just write some numbers. Next to I anointed you king over Israel, write the number one. I delivered you from the hand of Saul, write two. I gave your master's house to you, three. 
your master's wives into your arms. Four. I gave you all Israel and Judah. Five. It's as if God is holding up his hand. And saying, look, David. One, two, three, four, five. I have, I have blessed you so richly. And notice in the last one, he says, I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And, and furthermore, he says, I haven't even opened up my other hand yet. I can tick off these five. All you had to do is ask, and I would have opened up the second hand. You can have anything that you wanted, but instead you chose to do it your own way after I blessed you so richly. Now, we've all had that lecture, haven't we, from our parents? I did this for you, and I did that for you, right? And now you did this to me? Do you know what our parents are actually saying to us in that moment? Or what God was saying to David in that moment? He was saying to David, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I have blessed you so richly. I would have given you Anything you asked for. In this case, David, shame is not a bad reaction. It's not a dysfunctional reaction. It's exactly what you should be experiencing right now. And apparently, while you've been covering all this up, there hasn't been much shame or guilt or remorse or regret over what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah and by all your lies. So here's what I want you to write down. There are times in life when shame and regret are the correct spiritual response. See, God is saying, David, you know my word. And you chose to depart from what I've laid out in the Bible. And you did that after I blessed you over and over and over again. David, that's shameful. So what I'm telling you, and and this still applies to us today, shame is a useful response, a helpful response that God has built into our lives when things like this happen. It's the correct spiritual response. So... Now, um, God is going to basically say to David, because you're the leader of my people and because you knew better and because you've been so richly blessed and because other people are looking on and they see you being a man after my own heart, what our relationship is supposed to be and now hasn't been, I'm going to have to discipline you. And David, I forgive you. I've removed the sin. It's taken away. It's placed on the Messiah that will one day come and die on the cross for you. You're you're completely forgiven, Lord. Uh, Forgiven, David, but but the discipline is still going to come. If you know the story, you know that the child that was produced when Bathsheba became pregnant, instead of staying around for, for David to enjoy, God takes that child up. To heaven. Child dies and goes to heaven while David remains and, and is not allowed to enjoy that child. 
But there are further consequences to this. So let's let's uh, take a take a look at this. This is what the Lord says: Out of your your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So here's the thing that's important for us to recognize. Sin brings consequences. It always does. This is why God says, don't sin. Not only because our sin offends his holiness and his perfection, but also because he loves us. And he doesn't want to see us suffer the consequences of our sinful actions. It's it's his love that's talking, as well as his holiness. And, And so he's constantly trying to remind you and me, don't sin. And then when we do sin, he forgives us. That's his grace. But he doesn't always prevent us from suffering the consequences. And so that's what we see here. There's a whole array of these consequences. And sometimes they're very, in a sense, gentle, not very public. But in this case with David, as you saw, I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Sometimes they're very public. I I, want to read a story. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the absence of people going to church... And having a place where they confess their sins to a Christian friend or a pastor. Uh, nowadays, people have taken to confessional websites. I don't know if you're aware that these exist. But there are multiple websites now where people go and they post their secrets. The things that they have deep regrets over and, and they're deeply ashamed of. I'm going to read you just one example of what I'm talking about. I was a freshman in college and was part of a big brother, little brother program at the YMCA. I had been assigned a pretty cool little guy about 11 years old, and we got together a couple of times a month. We had some good times. I was big into biking back then, and I talked to him and his mom about doing a 150-mile bike ride to benefit uh, MS. As I recall it, he got really excited about it and went out. And he raised $100 in pledges. But when the actual weekend came around, I had totally forgotten about it. And I didn't even think he could have ridden 150 miles on his little one-speed Huffy. And I had planned on going up to my cabin with a new girlfriend that weekend. So I crushed his hopes of riding 150 miles. I bailed on him and I didn't go. I know what a lousy big brother I am. I still feel bad about it now, and I wish I could tell my 19-year-old self to just take that kid on a ride. Now, I don't know how many years later this is, but can you relate to that? Something, maybe, you know, no lives were lost, but something that you regret, and, and and it sticks in your craw, and and it doesn't go away. Many, many, many years later, this, this man finds himself on a website writing it out, hoping that he can relieve some of the shame that he feels about his broken promise. His not keeping his commitment. 
You see, that's one form of a consequence is that shame continues to weigh on us until we find a way to resolve our shame. And that's, that's what this person is trying to do. In David's case, God comes to him and he says, all right, you've done, you've taken the first step. You've now repented um, or you're about to. But understand, there will still be consequences, and they are going to be consequences that will really be painful and public. So here's what what I want to say is, as we look at this, what God is saying is there's a useful purpose to this, and there's a reason God lays out these consequences, and there's a reason why shame comes up in our heart. And here's the why. Write this down. Shame shows that we get it. We get the difference between right and wrong. You see, why, why, is, that, why, why is that guy who didn't take that young boy, his little brother, on a ride feeling ashamed? He gets it. I made a promise. I made a commitment to that little boy, and I did not keep it. That's just wrong. He gets the difference. David knew the difference. It took him a little bit longer, seemingly, to get it. Or maybe he did get it, and that's why he was lying and covering it up. But he wasn't approaching it the right way. But it also helps us to get our need for repentance. Notice what David says at the end here. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He recognizes. And notice the last word. Not only I have sinned against Bathsheba, not just I have sinned against Uriah, not only I have sinned against the people I rule in this kingdom, against all Israel and Judah, but I have sinned against the Lord. Very, very important part of repentance is to be able to look and say, I have sinned. I've fallen short. I have not done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So shame shows, and this is the helpful part of it, the difference between right and wrong, and it also helps us get our need for repentance. Now watch what happens as the consequences begin to come about. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. Now, you're not going to understand that unless you understand who Absalom and Amnon are and what ticked Absalom off that he wanted to kill Amnon. Absalom and Amnon are brothers. Absalom is one of David's sons by one wife. Amnon is actually David's firstborn son. And Amnon has raped Absalom's sister. That's sorry for tender little ears, but that's what's happened. Now Absalom wants to, wants to kill him right away. He, he wants to do away with Amnon, but Absalom is smart enough to know He's wiser to wait. He waits two years with this thing festering inside of him. He, all the time, thinking about his sister Tamar. I'm going to get back at this guy. I'm going to get my revenge. He should have not touched our sister. 
And so he waits, and then you see what happens. He lures Amnon out at harvest time, and he has him murdered. Write this down. We should not be surprised at sin's consequences or the fact that the punishment will fit the crime. What had David done? He took someone who was extremely loyal, like a brother to him, Uriah the Hittite, had him lured out into the front of the the battle lines, then ordered the general to withdraw from him so that the Ammonites, the people they were fighting, would kill him. And it's exactly what happened. He lured Uriah out, and Uriah died. Now look, David's son Absalom does the exact same thing. Do you notice how in this situation... What's happening to David is almost poetically in line with what David had done to Bathsheba, Uriah, and the kingdom. We're going to see more of that. Flip the page. Now, Absalom's still alive. He's actually banished for a little while. But then David, feeling remorse over Uh, Absalom's banishment and missing his son Absalom, even though Absalom has murdered his other, his firstborn son, Amnon, calls Absalom back. And if you have your Bible and you want to just take a peek at it, open it up to um, 2 Samuel chapter 15, you'll see some pretty uh, enlightening things. What, What happens here is that Absalom now starts to be disloyal to his dad. He parks himself at the city gate. And and the city gate in those days was the marketplace and also the place where people debated and discussed the day's news, etc. and so forth. So this is very strategically done because Absalom knew that if he parked himself at the city gate, he'd, he'd be interacting with a lot of people. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and, and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. Do you hear that? Just a little backstab there. Wouldn't it be great if David had someone here at the, at the gate so that your concerns and issues could be listened to? Too bad my dad wasn't thoughtful enough to think about that. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Judge is the former name for king. Then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Just as David had been disloyal to Uriah the Hittite and backstabbed him, that's exactly what David is now going to suffer from one of his own children. Look at verse 6. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and he stole the hearts Of the people of Israel. Poetic? Yes, because shameful disloyalty led to shameful disloyalty. And it goes on. 
Absalom actually does, he, he successfully starts a revolt against his father while his father is still reigning. David is forced out of Jerusalem with a few of, of his followers. Absalom moves into Jerusalem. Meanwhile, one of David's key, key advisors does a Benedict Arnold on David and switches teams and goes over to Absalom. And now Absalom has got this guy who's completely a strategic weapon because he's so smart and so wise. His name is Ahithophel. And Absalom says to Ahithophel when he, when he gets up to the palace, Ahithophel, what, what should I do to show that I'm now the king and my father isn't? And strange to our ears, extremely strange to our ears today, but it wouldn't have been back in the culture of, of uh, polygamous kings. David was told by Ahithophel, take your father's concubines up on the roof and have sex with him in broad deadlight, daylight. So they pitched a tent. It's in your notes. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof And he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. You know what he's saying with that action? Who's king now? And do I fear David? Nope, and neither should you. But the flip side of it is, just as David had committed a horrible sexual sin, now the sexual sin is being committed against him by his own son. Shameful sexual sin led to shameful sexual sin. And then finally, Absalom leads his troops out now in this rebellion against his father. His father comes with his armies. And they're about to meet on the field of battle. David has three generals. That, are, that he divides his troops up and he stands by the gate of the city where he's taken refuge outside of Jerusalem, actually across Jer- the Jericho. He, David stands by the gate and as each general and, and each troop of men walk past, David says very loudly so that everyone can hear him looking his general one after another directly in the eye Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Don't take his life. All three generals march out. All the troops hear this. And in the battle, which takes place in a forest, Absalom, I don't know how else to describe this other than Absalom has big hair. And Absalom is mounted and his big hair gets caught in the branches of an oak tree And his mount rides out from underneath him and he's left there stranded, hanging in the air by his hair and he can't get untangled. And one of David's generals, his key general, the commanding officer, Joab, one of Joab's troops discovers Absalom in that position. And he goes back to tell Joab, hey, I found Absalom and he's helpless. And Joab looks at that guy and said, well, I hope you killed him. And, this, and the soldier said, dude, we, we all heard what King David said. I ain't going to kill him. Trying to get me killed? No way. Joab looks at that soldier. He takes three javelins in his hands. If you don't have the guts, 
He might have used a different word. To do this, I'll do it myself. And he goes out. He finds Absalom hanging from the tree. Boom, boom, boom. Into Absalom's heart. And Absalom's done. Messengers get sent to David then with the news. That's a story in itself because there are two of them. I won't go into it. But look what happens when the message comes to David that his son Absalom is dead. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Apparently, there had been very little mourning or grief or regret over the death of Uriah. But now there's deep grief and regret over the loss of his son. Shameful death led to shameful death. Why? Why do I tell you this? Can you feel the heart of God? The heart of of a heavenly father that would say to David and says to us every day, my grace and my mercies are new to you. Every day. I forgive you. Whatever you've done in the past, I forgive you. Now, I may still have to teach you. I may still have to coach you. And sometimes the only way I can coach you and teach you is for you to feel it deeply in your gut. And the only way for you to feel it deeply in your gut is to understand what you've done. And therefore, I'm going to let the natural consequences play out. You you treated others this way. You treated Uriah this way. And now let's take a look at what it feels like when you're treated the way you treated Uriah. Because I want you to learn. I love you. I forgive you. But I don't want you to keep on doing this over and over and over again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let, I'm going to allow some pain to hit you. The heart of the Heavenly Father doesn't want to allow it to hit us. Because he loves us. You know what my dad used to always say before I got spanked? Maybe your dad said this to you too. This is going to... Yep, that's what they say. And it's true of the Heavenly Father. It hurts him more than it hurts us to watch us go through that. So could David have avoided that? I want to warn you about something. And this is so important. I want you to write it down even though there's not a blank for it. Now that's important. When I don't put a blank and I still tell you to write it down, write it down. I want you to write down two words. Tunnel vision. And then I want you to write these words. Tunnel vision is the result of temptation. You know this. David was the victim of tunnel vision. When he saw Bathsheba, everything closed down to the temptation, the lust that he was experiencing in his heart. Whatever your temptation is, it might not be lust, it might be greed, it might be selfishness, but whatever it might be, understand this. If that temptation, the strength of the temptation is going to be the strength of the tunnel vision. 
Now, do you know what's, what's so harmful about the tunnel vision? It keeps you from connecting the dots. Because you're so focused on how am I going to get what I want. That you forget to think anything further beyond you getting what you want. And you forget to think, well, this isn't what God wants. And there might be some other things that happen after I get what I want. David got what he wanted. But because of his tunnel vision created by his temptation, he wasn't thinking about connecting the dots to things beyond getting what he wanted. Can I warn you about that today? We need to develop with the Holy Spirit's help the ability to step back from our temptation and ask ourselves, do I have some tunnel vision here? Because I want this sinful thing so badly that I can't even think of anything beyond that. What might happen if I do this? Because that is killer. When we stop connecting the dots. And and it can be little things. It can be not keeping a promise to an 11 year old. And it can be big things like adultery and murder. I'm not going to encourage you to go on those confession websites. There's a lot of stupid, filthy stuff on there. But I am going to tell you this. The volume of those sites and the volume of the confessions tells you that we're all dealing with those times when we had tunnel vision and we didn't connect the dots and we're paying the price today. And sometimes the price is steep. So can we avoid it? Look at what it says in Romans 6, 20 to 22. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Underline those words. Let me connect the dots for you, Paul says. Those things result in death. That's where it's going to lead. But now that you have been set free from sin because of Christ, because of Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, and have become slaves to God... The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result. Let's connect the dots the other way. What Jesus did for you at the cross by bleeding and dying for you, by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. What Jesus did for you by living a perfect life in your place is your perfect substitute and offering that life to you. What Jesus did for you by rising from the tomb is he gives you hope, peace, Joy, knowing that if you stick with Jesus, eternal life is going to be the result. Connect those dots too. To avoid shame, we must be able to connect the dots. And finally this. What if it's too late? I mean, in a sense. We didn't catch ourselves in the tunnel vision. We've done something shameful. It's been resting in our hearts and festering for a long time. Is there any way to resolve it? Remember what we said at the beginning. What's the problem? Is the problem shame? The problem is not shame. Shame can be appropriate. The problem is, you have to understand this, really, it's so important. The problem is unresolved shame. 
So how do we resolve it? Well, the Bible has that all over it. Because the Bible's answer to it is Jesus. Jesus has already resolved it for you. Because of his death, and before his death, his perfect life, and after his death, his resurrection to life, because of those things, he's your Savior, he's your Messiah, he's your Lord, and he has resolved your shame. Take it to him. That's what we call repentance. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 2.6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, meaning Jesus, and the one who trusts in him will, read it with me, will never be put to shame. That's how strong the promise is that God makes to you. When we believe in Jesus, you will never be put to shame. Why not? Because it's been resolved at the cross for you. One last quote. Shame is the root of dysfunction in families. Shame is the root of dysfunction in families. And and I would add the word unresolved to that. That's another quote from a a psychologist. And I'm telling you this, the reason I'm, I'm wrapping the message up this way is, in two weeks, we're going to be starting a series called House of Cards, in which we're going to be talking about the dysfunctions that we experience in our families. Me too. And how can we resolve our shame, this shame that at least one psychologist believes is the root of dysfunction in our families. I want to invite all of you to come on August 16th. You can come next week too as we wrap up this series. But especially come on August 16th so that we can talk about how to get rid of the dysfunction in our families and how Christ has really, in a sense, already gotten rid of it because of his grace and mercy. Come back, invite a friend, give them the invite card, point them to the website, Because as a church now, we want to help you deal with shame and help you have a healthy, strong family. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for getting rid of our shame by sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for resolving it for us through your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, now give us your spirit so that we begin to connect the dots beyond the temptation and the tunnel vision that it causes. Help us not to have to deal with the consequences ones like David dealt with of our own sin. And Lord, because every one of us in this room already is dealing with consequences because of our sin and our shame, every one of us has things that we're dealing with. And the consequences from them assure every person in this room, Jesus, that you are walking with them through those consequences as you walked with David through his consequences and kept him yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. 
Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. We've said it again and again during this series. The hero of this series is not David. The hero of this series is Jesus. And today we see why again. Because Jesus is the one that resolves our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And we may still go through bouts, appropriately sometimes, of shame. But we don't have, we don't have to live there. We don't have to go on and on and on in our shame because we can say to ourselves, I'm forgiven. I've been given the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And my shame is resolved because of Jesus. Let me send you out with that thought into your week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord. We'll see you out on the patio.